How y'all doing today? Okay. All right, great. That was like four greats and a bless. I'll take that today. I'll take that. Let's go ahead and go with that. Um, yeah, so for those who don't know me or if those listening online later or something like that, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here at Refuge. Usually we would do a scripture reading time right now. However, we're going to be jumping into a new sermon series, and I want to take a little bit of time to kind of set that, that tone and set that pace for us as we head into uh, this first week of it. Uh, as Celeste mentioned, this is the first Sunday of the Lenten time. All right, that was a weird, see, that was a test because you shouldn't cheer for that. No, you can cheer for it, but uh, it is really a season focused on the reflection, um, reflecting on the, the realities that lead to the death of Jesus. And I think this is really important. It, it's largely something that has been kind of disregarded or stepped away from by the modern kind of evangelical church. However, uh, historically, it has been a season of deep reflection about the realities that lead to Jesus' death. And, and this is important for us to understand. You've probably heard it said in some shape, form, or fashion um, that, that the good news, right, is always preceded by the bad news. And, and in a lot of ways, we, we take this season of Lent to reflect on what the bad news is. Not so that we can just be somber or so that we can be sad, but rather so we can prepare our hearts for the truth of the good news, the truth of Jesus' death, but likewise, and maybe more so, the truth of Jesus' resurrection uh, three days later. And so we're starting that today, and, and we're going to go ahead and jump into this time. We're going to start a sermon series it's called Ashes to Ashes. Uh, however, um, we didn't do Ash Wednesday. If you did, props to you. Uh, I'm shocked that I didn't see you with a selfie with the ashes on your forehead. That was a, that was a, a hot commodity on social media Wednesday, right around 10 a.m., hot commodity there. Um, before we jump in, I do just want to uh, say that my apologies for uh, sounding uh, rough. And so my family is sick. Everyone is at home. <coughs> You're going to see me step away like that a lot. Uh, and it was just too late in the week to find someone else to preach, and I was like, you know what? Sunday morning, I'm going to have to pump myself full of drugs, and we're going to have to give it a go. So you're either going to get a raspy voice, some wild jokes. I'm just kidding. I, it was Dayquil, people. It was Dayquil. Um, but, yeah, so we're going to jump in, and apologies in advance. The other thing I want to say is shout out to you. Uh, and thank you for being here. I made a joke last week as we were exiting with some of the volunteers that uh, there is a stretch from right around President's Day uh, on through to Easter uh, where it is a, look, look I, know, I already know, I just met Kim. And Kim nodded his head yes, and I just found out Kim is a pastor. And so I, just earlier, Kim's nodding his head because he knows that there is a stretch between President's Day and Easter where everyone's like, I'll go to church at Easter. So, like, I just want to say shout out to you for being here. All right, yeah, no, thank you, thank you. And so uh, I'm not gonna say that you should guilt the people that are not here when you see them like a small group or during the week or whatever, but we are talking about guilt today, so I don't, I don't know. But anyway, I just wanna say shout out to you. Uh, as we get started this week, I am excited and I wish I had more energy to give you, uh, but I, I do wanna use the energy that I have this morning to start us in this Ashes to Ashes series, reflecting on, on one of the most fundamental realities that we think about when we think about the need for Jesus' crucifixion, the need for Jesus' work on the cross, and that's the reality of guilt. He doesn't need to ask the question yet, uh, uh, Misty. Guilt is a tricky one, right? Guilt is, guilt is rough. And if you, you showed up today to church like, hey, I'm ready to talk about guilt, you probably didn't, didn't feel that way this morning. I promise you. The fact that I'm saying it right now makes you think probably I would assume you're like, oh, man, this is not the Sunday to be here. I should have gone with all the other people that were like, you know what, I'll go to church on Easter. We're going to talk about the resurrection. No, but, but nonetheless, guilt is actually so important. It's, it's when we did our, our emotions series last year, I was so encouraged by the time we talked about guilt because it unveiled this reality that, that guilt itself oftentimes does not unveil something bad. But, but it does unveil our heart, and, and that can be positive. It could be, you know, that we did something negative. There's so many different realities of guilt, but, but we have a weird relationship with guilt in our modern culture, considering the fact that um, depending on what you've done in the modern world that we live in, you can easily look up, and, and the guilt that you feel knowing that you did something wrong, we look up at, at like, our, our, the landscape of our culture. We see people that have maybe done similar things, 
that have said similar things, that have thought similar things, and the response to them is so heavy. The response to them is so, um, is so aggressive. It's oftentimes so isolating. And people look like they're cast away in the, the kind of canceled type of purgatory where you're just over there and it's like, no, you did this wrong. There's no redeeming quality about you, no redeeming quality about your life. You're defined by this thing. And we see that on a broader level in the culture around us. And I, if you're anything like me, it does sometimes make you feel insecure about how you've approached things and about how you've thought of things. And maybe instances of your past or instances of, of your own um, kind, of, kind of interactions with the world around you. And so guilt has this weird, weird experience where it makes us want to hide, makes us want to isolate, makes us want to get away from people. Sometimes it makes us want to fight and get into it with people. And so we look at the person that we feel like is kind of kind of called us out and we're like, I'm going to go fight you. And I'm going to defend my honor. I'm going to defend the honor of the people next to me, the people that I love. It's such a weird relationship. It's a weird relationship. And, and to be honest, it, it's a weird relationship in the scriptures as well. It's a weird relationship in the Bible. It's a weird relationship in, in Christianity. Um, when we think about what guilt looks like in the Bible, we oftentimes think about a, a text like Romans 3.23 that says, all have sinned and fallen short, that's going to be up here, all, for all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this introduces us to the idea of guilt in the Bible, that, that we are all sinful, we've all sinned, and as a result of us having sinned, we are now guilty. And some of you might be like, well, what is sin, right? And, and maybe none of you are asking that, but I want to cover my bases nonetheless. All right, so if you think about what is sin, that's the, the most straightforward definition I saw was simply that sin is any deviation from divinely revealed will. Now, that's a, that's a little weird sentence. It's a complex sentence. Let's think of it more, put in other words, sin is any departure from God's will. Sin is any departure from God's will. Now, that could be the fact that we do something negative. It could be meaning like we can, we can hurt someone. We can be a vile person, right? You can kind of like go and, and hurt people or you can cheat on your taxes or all the things that we kind of associate with big sins, you know, infidelity, uh, X, Y, and Z. But at the same time, God's will isn't limited to what you're not supposed to do. It's also, it's also very much so wrapped up in what we're supposed to do. And so think about the times that we've looked on those with need and rather felt pretty apathetic toward their need. And so it's not just the way you contributed to the negative realities of the world, but also how we've contributed to the, how we've responded to the negative realities of the world. Instead of having a redeeming, redemptive heart and quality to our lives that seeks to go out and to produce a beautiful world around us, sin can likewise be when we turn a blind eye to that and go, no, no, that's not for me. At least not today. I'm a little too busy. I have this going on, I have that going on. And once we frame it like that, this becomes a more challenging definition. Because in that way, maybe you haven't thought of all the times you've done wrong in your life. But I guarantee you, you can think about some times you turned a blind eye to what was wrong in your life. Whether it was for your own benefit, whether it was because you were just too busy, whether it was because you were scared, whether it was because you felt those feelings earlier of fearful of isolation or condemnation or, or being judged or X, Y, and Z. No matter what it is, when we think about this definition of sin where it is likewise, it, it's both what we do to violate God's will in our, in our actions, but also how we passively look the other way when others are either violating God's will or, or experiencing the results of people violating God's will. The results of a broken world, we all find ourselves in this place where we are guilty of sin, and as a result, we're guilty before God. It's really, really tricky. It's really tricky, and this is one of the realities that we live in in the world. And it, it's, it's not hard to see. Again, you can largely, most weeks, you can walk out those two front doors here at Houston Elementary, and on a Sunday afternoon, many of us can testify that when you walk out, you can see the evidence of a broken world in front of you. And if you're anything like me, and I don't mean that, I don't mean like, like, oh, I see a house and somewhere in that house there's like someone, I mean, there's been literal instances where people are just outside and the aroma of illegal substances is in the air. And I gotta be honest with you, I've never sat there and been like, I'm gonna go talk to them today. Right, that's a great example of when I look at my own life, I'm guilty of sin and I still am. But here's the question. The question is not going to be whether we are guilty. The question, the question is not going to be whether we're guilty because we all are. The question that we're invited to think of now, rather, is how do you respond 
to your guilt? Right? How do you respond to guilt? I think that's the better question to ask. Because I got to lovingly tell you, you're guilty. You have some guilt. You've participated in sin, and I have too. The question now that determines where you go from here, the question that determines what your life will look like as you wrestle with that guilt is how do you respond to the guilt? How do you respond to that? In our text today, we're going to start this this sermon series talking about good, and we're going to come out of uh, Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 9, this is taking place in in a bigger story, uh, like the rest of the Bible is, but the bigger story um, is really the story of uh, Israel's exile. By Israel, y'all going to, don't be super technical. I'm going to be super nerdy with you one second, but if, it, if this hits you and you're like, I know what you're talking about, don't feel weird. Um, right? Specifically, we're talking about the southern kingdom of Israel being taken from Jerusalem and, and put into a foreign country, Babylon at the time. Babylon is a city. Um, and there, there's, they're, 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 they spend years apart. And this comes not as just a result of some random geographic reality or some random kingdom invading another kingdom, but it comes off of the back of God promising uh, that, hey, if you follow my ways, it'll lead to blessings. But if you don't, and, and you actually perpetuate the darkness of the world, rather than perpetuating the light of the world, those blessings will be replaced with calamity. They'll be replaced with cursing. And this is the reality that, that the Israelites are living in. And yet now, in Daniel, we're going to see a man that, that identifies with the community of God, with the Israelites who are exiled, And then from there, we're going to see how he responds to the idea of guilt. How does he respond to guilt as he considers the guilt of his people? We're going to start in verse 11 uh, here, uh, and then we're going to read through, I believe, um, we're going to read through verse 16, I want to say. Verse 11 says, all Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done uh, under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done, but we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people from the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is this day, we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. Lord, In keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Uh, Man, that's intense. Let's just all take a deep breath. All right, because I know you're like, all right. I'm sure by this point you're already like, let's just get to the gospel part. Because this first part is rough. All right, and, and you're right, that, there's, there's a roughness, right? This is, these are the sections of the Bible that, if I'm being honest, when we get to them in our reading plans, we're like, oh, skip that part. Or I'm going to put it on audio in the background and let it, let it wash over me. But I'm not going to engage it too much, right? I just want to kind of get that part through and then hop on the bandwagon later when it's like God's redeeming things. And it's like, yes. But oftentimes we forget the fact that God redeemed through moments like this. And he redeems moments like this. The reality for Daniel is that he's writing from a perspective where he understands his own guilt. And the thing is, if you know anything about the book of Daniel, what's crazy about that is Daniel seems like a pretty righteous guy. Daniel seems like a pretty good dude. He he fights for his place uh, to worship God in the midst of, of this very secular world around him that's putting pressure to say, no, don't worship that God, worship these other gods, worship the king, worship X, Y, and Z. And Daniel continuously fights for his place to worship God. And so when we look at Daniel, we wouldn't necessarily always think that Daniel himself is so guilty. And yet when we read these words, we see that Daniel finds himself in a story that's bigger than himself. Daniel finds himself in a story that's bigger than just him. He doesn't look at the world around him and go, well, I'm doing fine. That's all. I'm doing good. That's all I got to worry about. 
Daniel connects himself to a bigger story. He understands that he's a part of a community chosen by God, empowered by God, given direction by God to go out and to make the world around him beautiful, to display God's goodness, to display God's character to the world around him. And he understands that that community has failed. That community has failed, and therefore the guilt the community has, Daniel takes on and says, we are guilty. Not they're guilty, but God, I know you and me are good, but they've messed up. And on their behalf, I'm trying to, he understands that I'm a part of this family. I'm a part of this calling. This is my responsibility, just as it is the whole. And if we have failed, then I have failed. Speaking about this specific idea, John uh, Golden Gay, Golden Gee, I forget how to pronounce his name, because he's European and I'm not. Uh, it says it like this, as it shares, meaning the community of faith, as it shares in the privileges of belonging to its community, it can't avoid sharing in the consequences that faithless, the consequences of that faithlessness, of which Moses' teaching and the Torah uh, warned when it spoke of Yahweh's replacing blessing by calamity. Even someone such as Daniel, who stands out for his faithfulness, makes that assumption. And so Daniel understands. Man, we're called to this, and if we failed, I, I take on the guilt personally. This is powerful, friends. I, I want to honestly direct your attention to just, just something real quick here. It's not like a, a super, super point that I'm making in the sermon, but it is a side note that I want, that I want you to take note of. This is what it looks like when a, when a person, when a human takes responsibility for something bigger than themselves. This is what it looks like when a human, when a person, takes responsibility for something that's bigger than themselves. You have a vision for something that's bigger than just yourself. You don't look at your life and go, my house, my wife, my kids, my job is all squared away. Now I can drive by every hurting person that I see because I know I've done my job. There's something bigger in the world. There's something bigger at play. And what it looks like when you have a vision for that, when you take responsibility for it, is that when it fails, you feel the weight of that. You feel the weight of it. You look around a city like Austin and even on Slaughter Lane where I live, right? We, we walk, we, we well, my, my kids don't walk. I walk and then we drive by homeless camps on, on literally like the southernmost street of the entire city. And when you see that and you've taken responsibility for something bigger than yourself, it should pain you. It can pain you. Because you recognize it's not just me that's in a house and comfortable with AC and heaters. There's a world around me that needs me, that I'm called to, that God has put me in the world to serve, to love, and to build up. And, and I have evidently, and we have evidently failed. Ooh, I told you I'm a little sick. That was the day quill. Maybe it was night quill. Um, <laughs> right, that, that's what it looks like, friends, to take responsibility for something that's bigger than yourself. How many of us do that? Can you honestly look at yourself and say you've taken responsibility for something more than just you? Hear me. I don't want to sit there and be like, you should take responsibility for anything less than just you. Hopefully, you are doing a good job stewarding the life that is yours. Hopefully, you do try and uh, pay your bills and make sure that your world is taken care of. But when that is squared away and you look at yourself and think like, hey, I'm generally doing okay. I feel all right. Do you take the next step of saying, what is there in the world that I can take responsibility for as well? What, what can I step into and what are you calling me to, God? God, what are you calling me to that I can give myself to and build up? There are people in this church, this is my side note, it's taking way too long, by the way. Um, but I just, last thing I'll say is that there are people in this church that I've been overwhelmed by in terms of the responsibility I've seen them take. One of them is Jermaine. Uh, oh, I'm gonna cry, I'm gonna cry. Jermaine is not from Austin. Jermaine ain't from Texas, despite the fact he's wearing a Houston Astros hat. Um, <laughs> Jermaine and his lovely wife, Callie, are from Charlotte, North Carolina, while their daughter's name is Charlotte. And to see the way this man said, I think God has called me to this. I'm going to give my life to it. I'm going to wake up early and meet Josh Friday mornings at 5 a.m., at the IHOP at Slaughter and Man Slaughter and 35. And I'm gonna be active and involved with X, Y, and Z, with this ministry, with that ministry. I swear the man does so much. He works and he serves his family, and I'm just like, bro, where do you have the time? Like, 
I'm given 40 hours a week to do these things, to be fair. You're not, and you just, it's just incredible. But I think that's a great example to say, hey, I love my family. I, I love what's around me. But God, what are you calling me to give myself to? What are you calling me to give myself to beyond just me? And I've seen this man bless other people in ways that have been so encouraging and uplifting to my faith in what God is doing. And what, where is God calling you to take more responsibility? Where is God calling you to give yourself to something? It's a great question. Um, another more brief side note. Uh, that was brief. This is going to actually be brief. Um, Daniel, in this writing, says something really important. He mentions the teachings of Moses. In other words, he says, I can think back to a certain point where you told me what was right and what was wrong, and I'm going to be accountable to that. Friends, there are times where, to be honest, um, we think ignorance is bliss. And to be 100% honest, ignorance is oftentimes just cursing. It's just curses. If you don't know what you're doing wrong, if you don't know where you're stumbling, if you don't know what's, produ what's producing fruit or a lack of fruit in your life, you just keep going, I don't know what it is. But you have never, ever given yourself to think about how does God want me to live? How does God want me to walk out my life? How does God want me to care for others? What does it look like to be accountable to the sins that he says are wrong and to give myself to be accountable to the calling that he gives me in my life to care and love others and to love him? And we don't give ourselves to actually learning this. And as a result, we have no idea what we're accountable to. We have no idea. Our ignorance is just producing curse. It's not producing blessing. Ignorance is not bliss. And so, so Daniel has a couple of great things happening here, but, but he's bringing his guilt and he's experiencing it. He's taking ownership of it. He's giving himself to something bigger. He's keeping himself accountable to something. And then from there, he's walking out and he's putting it before, before who? It's not, it's not a true question. Who is he bringing his guilt to in, in this prayer? I just said prayer. God. He's bringing his guilt to God. We res Daniel, I should say, responds to guilt by bringing in God. And let me be honest. This is where I think Daniel is displaying an extraordinary response that while we probably can give the Sunday school answer on a, on a real level, I would ask the question, is that what we do? And I would, I would, I would, put before you that I don't think it is for a lot of us, at least most of the time. When I think about how I respond to my own guilt, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna this is not in the scriptures, but I, I do wanna think about my own life and I wanna think about, and so I'm gonna give you some examples. I, I, I just wanna think about my own life and how I respond to guilt. What I think about most specifically are three things. In my own life, the three things that I think about most often are one, self-judgment, my own judgment. The second is a fear of others. And the third thing that I bring my guilt to is a false vision of God. Those are the three things that if you're anything like me, I can't speak about you. I don't know. I'm not a sociologist. I don't know everything that the human condition brings. I just know what the Bible's talking about. And I know how I'm interacting with it. And those are the three things that I oftentimes respond to my guilt with most often. My own judgment a fear of others, and a false vision of God. I think one of my, uh, going back to the first one, my own judgment, I, I think about this a lot because um, a lot of you guys might know that I like working. Like, I really do. Like, I really like working. I really like working at the church. It's something that I really deeply enjoy. There, was, uh, there have been times in our church's life where I have just gladly worked like 60 or 70 hours a week, just like doing something during the day, put my kids down, make sure my wife is good, open my computer and keep going because it's just like, this is fun. This is a good time. And I really enjoy it. And, and I've expressed that to y'all. And I've said, this is who I like to see myself as and something that I really enjoy and something that I feel proud of, that I can work hard. Uh, I remember when I was in college and um, I was serving at a church in San Marcos. It's where I went to, to undergrad. And we had a little kerfuffle, a kerfuffle, is that exactly? kerfuffle in the, in the leadership team at the church. And uh, I, was, I was involved in it, not on like an active end, but someone was like, well, 
you know, how come Josh gets to do all these things and we don't? And then the pastor kind of defended me a little bit. And, was, and then he, I came to him and I was like, hey, I want you to know I'm really sorry. You know, I didn't mean for all that to happen. And he looked at me and he was like, well, you're a horse that I have to rein in, not a horse that I have to kick. And I, I'm thankful for that. And I was like, well, all right. I mean, you know, I hope you say so. You know, <laughs> And I, I remember in those moments, it did so much to me because that was such a wild contrast to the person that I had been all prior to that. Historically, my dad's back there. Uh, my dad can testify to the fact that there was a, a dramatic change in my life at some point that, that went into this space where I was hardworking. But prior to that, I don't know as I was, as I was a, an adolescent, a teenager, if I could have described myself as hardworking. Um, my dad, I don't think my, definitely don't think my dad would describe me that way. <laughs> Based on the condition of the yard and dishes and X, Y, and Z, I'm 99% sure my dad would look and be like, I got I to gotta rein that horse in. He's trying to plant a garden in the midst of our yard. No, it's, it was more like, hey, can you please mow the yard, you know? And so if I were to look at myself, I have a vision of myself as a teenager. Hardworking is not what I would have thought. And I think it was that reality, that part of me that led to things like not going to school, not finishing high school, uh, kind of getting involved in drugs in a way that robbed so much of my life for a two-year period that I honestly don't remember. I remember like two-week two week chunks of time in that two-year period. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, I'm able to look and be like, oh, but God was redeeming in that space, and he let me get a GED and let me go to school. But the, the thing is, I'm, I'm so, I so cling to the idea that I'm hardworking now because if I'm being honest, I hate that I was so, so not hardworking then. It makes me feel like I wasted my life. It makes me feel like I didn't live up to potential. It makes me feel like I had so much ability. And I look at my wife sometimes and she's like, man, babe, you're so smart. And I think like, man, I could have I could have done X, Y, and Z. I could have done X, Y, and Z. And it's crazy because I'm 32 years old. If I died today, People would be like, he had so much potential to live up to. And in my mind, I'm like, I squandered all my potential. Right? Like, it's crazy. But that's how I feel. I'm scared that if I surrender the idea that I work hard, what it'll say about the fact that I didn't work hard and what it'll say about that season of my life. I hate that. And I wrestle it because I judge myself. I judge that time based on what I wish could have happened. My own judgment is what I bring my guilt to, and I say, what do you think about this? And I respond in, in turn. Yeah, you kind of look kind of lazy, so keep working hard. But the other one is a fear of others. And y'all know, know this feeling. Maybe you don't wrestle with the first one as much, but I guarantee you the majority of us in here wrestle with this one. And it's marked by a certain set of words. The moment I, I think that I've done something bad, the moment I think I've failed in some way, the moment I experience just the slightest bit of guilt, the next set of words that come to my mind, that come out of my mouth, are words that start with something like, but what will blank think? What will they think? What will mom think? What will dad think? What will she think? What will he think? And we, we submit our guilt to this fear of others and we go their opinion. Maybe before it was my opinion, but now their opinion is the chief opinion that defines me. And I, I put my guilt before the fear of others, and I think if they knew who I was, if they knew what I'd done, if they knew where I'd come from, if they knew X, Y, and Z about me, there wouldn't be enough there for them to love. There wouldn't, it, would, it, would, it would weigh the scales in a way that I would never be able to, to live up to probably who I want to be, who I wish I was in their eyes. Um, but I'm fearful of what they'll, what they'll think and how they'll respond to me. The fear of others is, is so big. It's so big. Um, I was going to tell a story about me and my wife, but I'm not going to. If you want that story, holler at your boy. Um, so the fear of others. And the last one is a false vision of God. I think in my life, a false vision of God oftentimes turns me it's, it's what I bring to the table when I bring my guilt to the table. Because I think about what God would do if he responded to my guilt, and I think he could, only, he could only be angry. He could only be disappointed. I've been a pastor for probably six or seven years now. Been a Christian for the better part of 12 
There are times when I fail in how I treat my wife, how I treat my kids, feeling like I didn't do the right thing here, didn't do the right thing there, where I wrestle with the thought if I gave one of you bad advice. And I oftentimes in those moments feel such a deep feeling of fear. I don't feel hope. I don't feel anxiety. I feel scared. Because my honest, honest thought is that what if God sees this and he takes X away from me because he's mad? That's my gut response. It's my gut response that God is an angry, miffed off figure that just always, thank you, I'm, okay, I'm going to grab it. I'm going to grab it. Thank you. Um, there's just this angry figure that is constantly there hoping that I fail and then and executing judgment when I do. Why would I ever bring my guilt to a God like that? Why would I ever bring my guilt to a God like that? Let me tell you the last thing that I thought about when I was thinking about this in my own life. Historically, my inability to take responsibility has largely been focused on the fact that three, these three things present themselves most often. I started today, started talking about Daniel by saying, this is what it looks like to take responsibility for something more than just yourself. Take responsibility for your actions, the actions of others, the community around you, the world around you. What oftentimes stops us from that, I think, are these three things. That we think if, if I fail, if it fails, if we fail, if I make a mistake, what will I think, what will they think, what will God think? And all of a sudden, a life that's full of potential a life that's full of gifts that God has called to do unique and special things is, is rendered to an isolated, self-obsessed, self-centered life. Not because you are selfish, but because you are scared. That's what I've experienced. Because how I respond to my guilt is by taking it to all these places, false vision of God, fear of others, my own judgment, and it makes me go, well, I don't want to be more guilty than I have to be, so I'm just going to not take responsibility for this, for that, and the other. So that's how I respond to my guilt. Hopefully you, you relate to some of that, but maybe you have your things. Whatever they are, right, answering the question, how do you respond to guilt, I think is an important question to, to ask. But I want to go back to Daniel to think about how he responds to guilt. We said he brings it to God. Does he bring it to the God that I know? Does he bring it to the God that I think about when I talk about that angry Ebenezer Scrooge-like figure, you know? Um, who does he bring it to? I think verse 17 starts us on the path of understanding that and seeing that more. In verse 17 of chapter 9 in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, he continues, therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that bears your name. And this is really important. For we are not presenting our petitions based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Uh, shout out, shout out for this now. Thank you. What a vision of God. What a vision of God to respond to with guilt. I don't make my petition 
based on my own acts. But I make my petition based on your abundant compassion. That's, that's, what I, that's what I respond to guilt with. That's what Daniel's responding to guilt with. Not by his own judgment, not by a fear of what others think, not by a false vision of God's um, vengeance. Though I, I think that there are moments for that. I'm not saying that the God of the Bible is absent of, of anger. He gets angry at times. Yet, the, over, the overarching characteristic of God is not one that stays angry but that one who's good can be angered and can respond in compassion. That's the, that's the overarching character of God. And that's, that's what Daniel responds to his guilt with. You're compassionate. And he lays down his guilt at the feet of a compassionate God. And, that, and that's what he does. And so there, right? as I say most weeks, there's your, there's your, there's your application point. Have a good week. But that's not going to happen this week, is it? It's a struggle for us, ain't it? It's a struggle. I can tell you all this today. You can write it down. You can try to put it into practice for the next five weeks. And the reality is you're still at some point going to look up and go, oh, man, but what about my own judgment? What about the fear of others? What about God and his anger and the fact that he's mad at me? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Friend, I want to encourage you that this is... This is written by a man named Daniel. I think you've assumed that already. And at the beginning of this chapter, it's not going to be on the board, Daniel writes, in essence, an introduction to this prayer that he's going to say to God. And in it, he, he basically says, I'm going I'm to offer this prayer on the behalf of my people. Because though they are faithless, I still have a measure of faithfulness to you. I'm going to ask that you would be faithful to us who are faithless. I think there was a figure that plays that same, a person that plays that same role in our life. Because right now, when we're looking at some of these things, I hope you feel the weight of them, but, but it may be challenging to really see how you could do this because again, we've tried. We've tried and we failed. And oftentimes we've tried and we failed, and the blessings that we hope to accomplish are turned into the curses that are, that are kind of involved or in our lives right now. And we get frustrated by that. And so we keep trying, we keep trying, but, but it feels like continuously we keep failing. And guilt seems to still be in front of us. But the beautiful, the beautiful reality today is that while, while Daniel looked at the compassion of God and brought his guilt to it, we look at the compassion of God in a person, and bring our guilt to him. You see, Jesus, likewise, is not just, not just a savior, but he's the representative of his people. Colossians says he's the head of the body, the church. What does that mean? It, it means that he represents us. You see, Jesus sees a vision that's bigger than just himself. He doesn't sit back and go, oh, you know what? I mean, I'm good. I've never sinned. I'm in glory. Y'all messed up. I'm going to turn the blind eye. I'm going to keep driving. He has a vision for the world around him, a vision, a vision for the world he created, a vision filled with joy and with love and with redemption and with restoration. And like one who is filled with a vision, he doesn't just take responsibility for himself, he takes responsibility for it. And he steps into the world that is filled with darkness, this world that is broken and is hurting. And he takes responsibility for it. And he comes before God and says, we are guilty. I will make myself guilty by aligning myself with these people. Take me. Take me. Let me pay that price. Let me restore my people. Let me be the one who stands in between the guilt and the redemption. And he takes responsibility for it. And he goes to the cross in order to make things right. And now in his resurrection, he stands victorious above not just the darkness of the world, but the darkness of our lives. And it's for that very reason that as we stand here with guilt on us now, that we reality, in, in terms of our actions, we're guilty. But because of the work of Jesus, we're innocent. Why? Because he has a vision. Because, because he's given himself. Because he's taken responsibility. 
And now when you think of your own guilt, you don't bring it to this idea of God's compassion, but you bring it to the one who's taking responsibility for not just the world, but taking responsibility for your life. Your life is now wrapped up in his life. Abide in me, he says. Abide in me. And I will abide in you. Your life is his. And you've been brought into a people that are called to go and to, to do the same thing in a lot of ways that Israel was called to do, to love others, to care for the world around you. It's why we planted this church in southeast Austin instead of like, I don't know, insert a nice community. I mean, that sounded bad. That's not what I meant. <laughs> I meant in more affluent community, okay? And he's called you to, to take this redemptive, loving, caring responsibility that he's placed and he, he's placed over you in, in his own compassion and his own love. And he sends us out to say, now I want you to go do the same thing. I want you to love other people. I want you to care for people. I want you to restore the community around you, not based on your own merits, but consistently coming back to my work on the cross and my resurrection that continues to feed into uh, your responding to your guilt and compassion and love and redemption. In fact, you're not even guilty anymore. I know you keep doing it, but you're not even guilty anymore because your, your life is wrapped up in mine. Right? And so now we're sent out to do that. And that's what, that's what your day-to-day -day life looks like. No longer saying, God, I'm so guilty, but saying, God, I'm so free. And instead of running back to say, God, always, I just want you to say, hey, I'm sorry for reaction. Just keep putting a step forward. Keep putting a step forward. I'm not saying, I'm not saying set aside repentance. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that if you're so focused on repentance that you forget about calling, then you're missing the mark completely about what it means to follow Jesus. If all you're doing is focusing on repentance and you focus on it so much that you never think about calling and what he's calling you to through the fact that he's already forgiven you, the fact that he's already redeemed you, then you're missing the mark completely about what it means to follow Jesus. So bring your guilt to the one who makes you whole, the one who forgives, the one in whom your life is now found, and then go out, go out and give your all. Go out and give your all guiltless not because you won't make mistakes and you won't do something wrong, but because he's paid for them already, right? That's the calling that we have. That's what you're going to be sent out to do here in about like 15 minutes, to do that. Not to go out and think, how can I live my life better? How can I be a better Christian? And in that say, how can I be more moral? But to say, how can I follow Jesus in a way that restores the world around me the way he's restored the world in me? That's what you're going to be called to. That's what bringing your guilt to God should do as we continue to learn more about him and what he's done versus what we've done. All right, I gotta be honest. I set absolutely zero timers up here today, so I don't know how far in I am. Uh, however, um, my dad said he was gonna keep track of time and he's not giving me one of these yet. So I'm gonna go ahead and assume I got, I got three minutes. Uh, I think this is probably most powerfully seen, or one of the things, one of the places I look at where I love to see this whole idea at work uh, most is a song in the musical Hamilton. All right. Uh, I hope you really, all right, we got one snap for Hamilton. I got a, like three giggles. Uh, I hope you've listened to the musical Hamilton. If you haven't, I feel bad for you, son. Um, because Hamilton's incredible. And near the end of the musical, uh, if you don't know what the musical is, it follows the, the you know, fictionally, I'm not going to act like it's all fact. It's based off of an autobiography, but there's some creative license taken through the whole thing. But it follows the story of Alexander Hamilton as he is as the, one of the founding fathers of America, uh, at being this brash but extraordinarily intelligent man. And he fights and he gives himself and he, he does in a lot of ways take responsibility for more things than himself. And he, he strikes and he fights and strives and he does incredible things, but he also is brash along the way. He makes enemies and he hurts people. And he influences people. And ultimately, the, 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 the show or the story climaxes in the fact that his son, Philip Hamilton, has taken on a lot of these same characteristics. He's very brash. He's very proud. He's very smart. 
and he challenges a man to a duel defending his father's honor, and he's shot in that duel, and he dies as a young man. And in the story and in reality, this rocks Alexander Hamilton. It rocks him in ways that, as you can imagine, would rock most anybody. But the thing is, it rocks him uniquely. Because in the strain of the story, he can identify, this was my duel. And his life, in a lot of ways, in that moment, is humble. It's brought low. He's given a reality check. And after years of striving, including a very public affair that most people know that dishonors his wife, he takes his wife and his family and they move uh, to uptown New York and in a very different life. And there he begins to meditate on his life and his actions and what's happened. And it feels like all these are really present, all the things we talked about. Uh, because he ends up saying, like, man, I, I walk up the street, I look up at the cross and I pray. I've never done that before. He reminisces about times with his son and wishes that his son was here to see the things that they're doing in the community now and, and just, you know, how they're living. And at a certain point, he looks at his wife who has been angry for a number of years at the extraordinarily public nature of his affair. And in the song, he begins to take responsibility for his actions and how he's hurt his wife and how his actions have led to the death of their son. And he begins to take responsibility for that. And he begins to repent in all honesty and he begins to ask for forgiveness. And in the song, there's this beautiful moment where his wife, her name is Eliza Hamilton, while most of you know there's a book about Alexander Hamilton, there's also a book about Eliza Hamilton, and it's a banger. She grabs his hand, and she begins to make subtle but affectionate small talk with him. And there's this choral moment out of the back that just whispers the word forgiveness. I don't know the real story of what happened between them. In those seasons, in that moment, what I do know is that after... Hamilton died shortly after this in a, a duel, coincidentally. She spent the rest of her life obsessing about defending the legacy of her husband. So much so that people have noted that she used to wear a little container around her chest hanging from her neck that had a sonnet that Hamilton had wrote her when they were just dating all those years ago into her old age until she died. What a powerful thing forgiveness does, friends. What a powerful thing it does. How powerful is it when we actually take responsibility for our actions, we bring them to the feet of those in whom we've, we've, we've hurt God first and foremost, and that forgiveness redeems, restores, and brings new life and powerful in beautiful ways. I think that's the vision of guilt in the gospel. Not that guilt would be a means to try and make you do things you didn't want to do. Not as a means of trying to like hold it over you and lord it over you so that you could get your act together. But as a means of redemptive, beautiful forgiveness that remakes the life inside of us, that gives courage to our heart. I think that's a better vision for for how we respond to guilt and how God responds to guilt than what we oftentimes carry around. I gotta land this plane and I got three, three points for you to just take away and then we're gonna pray. The first thing is that responding to guilt like this, I, I hope it does three things in you. So I hope you keep an eye out for this. I hope one, it leads to worship. It should lead to worship. Bringing guilt to God and then walking away without it being worshipful probably means you're bringing it to a false vision of God, not a true vision of God. So let it lead to worship. The second one um, is that I hope that as we build this in, as we start to look to Jesus, as we start to find our life wrapped in him, as we respond to our guilt by, by preaching the good news and by finding our lives in Christ, that it frees us. I hope you feel freer through the means of the gospel. The gospel is not a story built in order, no matter what you've heard said on any TikTok video you've watched. 
The gospel was never meant to be this thing where it instilled guilt on you to get you to control you. In fact, the story of Jesus is one that, that points out guilt and then redeems it in order to free us. And so if you're walking in your life and you're feeling more caught up in the guilt rather than the freedom that God's grace gives you, again, you might be taking your guilt to a false vision of God. And then the other thing, the last thing is that, friends, I, I hope it frees others. I hope it frees others. I hope that through you feeling the weight of forgiveness, I hope that you can find it to forgive others. I hope that you uh, forgive others. I hope you repent to others and free them of some of the bitterness maybe they've built up toward you for things you've done. And so I hope that this leads us to worship God. I hope that it frees us. I hope that it frees others as we continuously bring our guilt and respond to it by by being met with the gospel, by being met with the compassion, the love of Jesus, more specifically, the life of Jesus now in which we find our life. And so if you would pray with me, Father, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, thank you, God, that my voice is held up this long. I think that's a miracle of your spirit, and I appreciate you. I also ask God that you would, um, today, with us here, that we would not be fearful of the guilt that we carry around with us. I think a lot of us probably have a very tumultuous relationship with this feeling, a tumultuous relationship with this experience. And yet a day like today, we're invited to not see it as a, as a pain anymore or as a burden, but rather to respond to it with the good news that brings redemption and life. Only in your hands could something as beautiful, as, as dark as ashes be made into something beautiful, Father. As ugly as guilt be made into something like redemption as ugly as death be made into something as life. And so that's the reason we bring you our guilt today, Father. We bring you our guilt today knowing that in your redemptive hands and the work of Jesus, we receive grace and hope that frees us. We love you. We thank you. Help us to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.